You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's good to have you here. We're in our third week of our new series called Justified, how God mends broken people in a broken world. And it's a journey through this letter of Romans. And we started a couple weeks ago at the end of Romans to show kind of the destination where Paul was taking us. And we found then that Romans was really about power and privilege and how one group in Rome was asserting its rights, if they want to call them rights, over other groups. So it was the Gentiles versus the Jews or Jews versus Gentiles, the weak versus the strong, the free versus the slaves, and even men and women were being divided in Roman society in some type of a hierarchy. And Paul says that has all gone away. The church has brought all of those divisions and mended them through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then last week, we said, how did that happen? It is at the beginning of Romans, Romans uh, 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel we found is not only the power of God, but the content of the gospel, the form of the gospel, and the way the gospel works, that it's good news, not just good advice. And we're going to get into some of that good advice talk today, because I think Romans 2 is how we give, quote, good advice to each other all the time. Okay, and uh, how do you take advice? Not very good, no. (laughs) Is there such a thing as good advice? I guess, but it's only when I ask for it. And then if you give it and I don't like what you say, I don't take it anyways, right? (laughs) No, it's amazing how we're set up. But somehow we think giving other people, teaching them a lesson, giving good advice actually works. We keep doing it. So we'll look at that today. Before we do that, though, let's pray, okay? And uh, let's pray for our, our world, our society, our area, for all sorts of things that are going on. Lord God, we thank you that through the gospel, you are mending us, our relationship with you, our relationship with others, and that you will mend this entire broken world again and bring it back together the way you intended it from the beginning. We pray, Lord God, uh, that you would be working through this message today, that your Holy Spirit is the one who's in charge, not me, nor anyone else, that your will is done. We thank you, Lord, that there are many gospel churches across Southwest Florida, as well as across the United States. And we pray today, whether online or in person, that your good news gets through and not just a bunch of advice to people. We pray, Lord, that that, the power of that gospel in our lives does give us that breakthrough to understand more fully who you are, and what our lives are all about. Lord God, you know how fractured our society is right now. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of pointing fingers, Lord God. There are a lot of alienation and divisions. We pray for your healing. We pray what you can only do. We pray also, Lord, for our leaders, both nationally and locally, Lord, that you would give them both humility to seek you and um, wisdom in, in, in their duties. Lord God, we pray for our first responders and all those in healthcare and all of our teachers in our schools right now, Lord, that in so many ways are dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic. And we pray that you protect them and guard them and bless them 
in all of their work. We pray too, Lord, for our children in schools, for our college right now, students who are back in class, and grant to them, Lord, your protection, your peace, your care, whether they are at home, online, or in person, Lord God. We pray that uh, you'd be working your will in their lives. We lift up to you, Lord, um, the, uh, those who are going to face a tropical storm or Hurricane Sally, Lord, in the Gulf Coast. We pray that you'd be with them. For those out in California and Oregon and the West, uh, Montana, I mean, Lord, we're seeing so much devastation right now. We pray that you would protect the firefighters, that you would guard human life, and that you would help us look to you and use your church in those circumstances to serve their communities for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. And bless us now, Lord, as we look again at how you have justified us and are mending our lives and mending our society. And we pray that that would be occurring through us here at Thrive into our community. All this we lift up to you this day in Jesus' name. So um, we've got a couple people at the door looking to get in. So if uh, somebody would uh, help with that, that would be great. That's always good. It's fine. You know, today's one of those rainy days. And um, who knows when you actually were able to get through all things. So it's good to have you here today. Today, in a sense, we're starting in Romans 2. So this is a 12-week series. We're in week three of it. And each week, we're going to be looking at a different chapter. So we started in chapter 16. We went to chapter 1. We're in chapter 2. And in a sense, what we're doing today is we're going to give you bad news to start. Okay? You're going to get some bad news before you get the good news. Now, that might sound counterintuitive, but I'll tell you this, no one welcomes the gospel, accepts the gospel at face value, the good news of Jesus, until they've heard the bad news about themselves, okay? And that's partly because we think, um, you know, all I really need is a little tweak. All I need is just um, a fine tuning, you know, give me a little advice. That's all I really want. And when I get the advice, I don't really want to take it. But that's often what happens. Um, I just need an improvement and an upgrade. And the gospel, when it comes, is total gift, total renewal, total everything. And we just don't accept it until we know there's bad news about ourselves. It's kind of like those who are hungry are the ones who will eat. I'm, I'm amazed like at, I've seen, uh, I've I was never a picky eater. My brother was a picky eater. And he could go for days. My mom would cook a great meal. I'd like it. He'd look at it. No. Until he got hungry enough, right? Then he would eat what she made. That's kind of the way it works. Uh, um, the thirsty are the ones who will drink. And it's the drowning man who is going to grab on to the lifeline. When you're convinced sort of of your own need or brokenness, that's when you will accept the mending that God gives in the gospel. So we're going to read in Romans chapter 2. And you can also follow along, by the way, on um, the U version of the Bible. There's notes under the U version under events. You can see, download the app. You hit more. You go to events. You type in our zip code, 33928. It should come up, Thrive Community Church and notes for this sermon. So we're going to be in Romans 2, verses 12 to 16, and then 28 to 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. <clears throat> His praise is not from man, but from God. So in this text today, there's somebody still outside. We need to keep somebody out there, I think. <laughs> or not lock the door. <laughs> All right. All right. Sorry for that interruption. <laughs> All right. So we're going to learn these three points in our text today, okay? How we all play this law enforcer or advice giver, okay? How we are all broken by the law and how we can be mended by the spirit. So first of all, how we play law enforcer. Now, there's a Canadian folk singer um, who's a Christian as well, but he's a folk singer named Bruce Coburn. You've probably never heard of him. Um, I used to listen to him a lot, and in it, what's fascinating is he wrote a song years ago with the title, Everybody Wants Justice Done to Somebody Else. Have you ever noticed that? We cry for justice to be done to somebody else. In other words, we want the law to come down hard on somebody else. We can see how they're messing up. We want to teach them a lesson. We at least want to give our opinion on the matter and expect them to follow it. Now, Bruce Hansen, who just wrote a new book, he's on Way FM as one of the commentators, and he's wrote a number of books. He said this, have you noticed how when we're on a self-righteous kick, and that kick can last our whole lives, we can't just let a thing be a thing. We're looking for ways to make the thing into an opportunity to teach others a lesson, to be offended, or to show how enlightened we are. In other words, to ruin everything. Just check that out, My, uh, how much advice giving we give to each other and what it really is doing is kind of putting me in the position of judging you by standards I don't even keep. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that too? Yeah. Yeah, you especially see um, this kind of advice giving or law enforcing that happens among the religious in our society. And I use the term religious specifically because I don't think that's necessarily being Christian, okay? So we want to kind of legislate and pass laws to enforce our sense of morality on others. And usually for the religious or the moralists among us, it's in personal morality, in sexuality matters, in marriage issues. That's the laws we want to pass. And somehow we think and a lot of religious people think if we pass enough laws and force other people to follow them, we will become a, quote, Christian nation. But Paul would say in Romans 2, keeping the law, you will never make a person a Christian by keeping laws. What you will make is a Pharisee. That's what happens. Now, on the other side, those who are irreligious in our society uh, point out the hypocrisy that they see in, quote, 
those religious people. They point to people like Jerry Falwell Jr. who recently had a fall or other religious leaders and show how judgmental they've been and how power hungry they've been, how political they've been, how two-faced. And, and the religious, irreligious people will look at the religious people and say, you've been so judgy and doing so, they're making a judgment themselves. Isn't that fascinating how everybody is playing the law enforcer. And though they might not recognize it, they want certain laws and rules passed on society. It won't be on necessarily sexuality issues, but it'll be more likely on the environment, on corporate greed, on how you need to be tolerant of everyone else. <clears throat> they want to enforce the laws. And somehow they think, we think, all of us think that if we just pass enough laws, we'll get people to follow, we'll have a peaceful and just society. And so the irreligious look at the religious as hypocrites, while the religious view the irreligious as immoral. We all want justice done to somebody else. And, the only, and we keep the divisions going, the power plays going in our society. And Paul looks at all of that in Romans 2. And he says this in Romans 2.1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. Ouch. Do you get what's going on here? You know, right now it's the... Those people should be wearing masks. Those people should protect the rights of what we have in the US of A. We're always pointing the finger at others, and we're really saying, everybody should follow my way of doing things. You know, what's fascinating, though, is we're all breaking the law. That's what Paul says. There's no one who doesn't break the law, or better yet, we're broken by the law. The law is fine. The law doesn't break. We're broken by the law. And that's our point, too. Paul bluntly says in Romans 2.12, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, Paul's not the first to say something like this. He kind of summarizes what's been said since the beginning of Scripture and what Jesus himself said in his life. Throughout the Bible, you will find that no one keeps the law, period. In fact, if you look at the history of what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, you will find that the children of Israel who were given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai were actually breaking the Ten Commandments as they were being given by worshiping the golden calf. They couldn't even keep it while it was given to them. And beyond that, throughout the history of the Old Testament, you will find that 90% of the time, 90% of Israel was worshiping idols and false gods. Nobody was keeping the law. Historically, it's never happened. Jesus' famous parable, the prodigal son, most of you probably know it, and we call it the prodigal son, but it's not about one son, it's about two sons, and both of them have a broken relationship to their father. The oldest son is the religious person. And he thinks he's keeping the law by going out into the field and working like a slave and doing outwardly what needs to be done. But when you see by the end of the parable, he is so ticked off at his father, he refuses to go in and he treats his father like dirt and disrespect, just like the younger son did, who was the free expression, immoral, let me live the way I want kind of person. 
both the religious and irreligious. It's amazing how often when people who are religious read the Ten Commandments or God's law in any form, we tend to read it in a behaviorist, outward appearance, reductionist way. And why do we do that? So that I can look like I'm keeping it. You know? Okay, I've given it the poor, check. I've mowed my lawn, check. I've been a good citizen, check. I've not stolen anything. I haven't murdered. All surface ways of saying I'm keeping the law. But Jesus comes along and says it's much more than outward behavior. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, he looks and he says, look, you want to understand what murder is all about? You'll see it in your human heart if you've ever said to your brother, Raka. And that's an Aramaic word that means empty head, nothingness, you know, kind of fool. But basically saying, you're a nobody. He goes, that's where murder starts by dehumanizing another person, by treating them as a thing instead of an actual valuable child of God, that's the acorn that will grow into the oak tree called murder. And we all face that. So Paul says you're not going to stand in judgment based simply on your outward behaviors. No. It's not like there's just a body camera video of what you've done on the outside. There's also the inner camera, the inner recording of every motive that you have. And Paul says in Romans 2.16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, all my thoughts, all my motives are going to be exposed. There's not enough evidence, by the way, in just one hour in any given time in my life that would convict me any given time as a lawbreaker and broken by the law. Religious people don't keep the law. They can't. They're broken by the law. But irreligious people will have no excuse too, Paul says in Romans 2. And you might go like, what? Wait a minute. What if they don't, they've never heard of the Ten Commandments? How can they be held accountable for that? And Paul says they don't need the Ten Commandments to know basically what's right and wrong. Their conscience will bear witness. It will accuse them sometimes. It will excuse them at other times. They kind of know basic morality. And besides that, Francis Schaeffer gave a great illustration. He basically says God does not need to judge you according to God's word. God can judge you by your own words. All he has to do is take your word for it, my word for it. It's as if we have a digital, not just a body camera, but a digital recorder around our neck that we never get rid of. And on the last day, all that God has to do is play back to me all my judgments against other people. All my times that I've ever said, you should, and I'm basically saying, this is my standard that you're supposed to live by. And what you find out is, I don't even keep my own standards. <laughs> You know, I think you should live with tolerance and respect and love and care. I don't do that. I just expect you to do that. God doesn't need to judge me according to his words. He could just take my own words and use them against myself. Human beings 
we have this tenacity about ourselves to believe in our own goodness when there's mountains of evidence in any given day for the opposite. I don't meet God's standards, duh, but I don't even meet my own standards. That's being broken by the law. So that's the bad news, but now we're going to finally get to the good news, okay? And that's our point three, how you can be mended by the Spirit. Now, as I started out, you need that bad news before you accept the good news, because what the bad news does is it cuts off every exit, every excuse, every loophole, every exclusion, every justification, every rationalization I can use that I could stand before God and say, well, but I've been, but, but, and, he, and they're gone. They're gone. There's no way for me to get out of it. And then Paul says... In Romans 2, 28 to 29, the last part of our um, reading today, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here, Douglas Moo, um, who wrote this extensive giant commentary on Romans, said, for the first time in chapter 2, Paul is now talking about not a religious person and not an irreligious person, but a Christian, one who trusts in Jesus. And Paul uses unique language to do it, and at first you go like, what is this whole talk about circumcision? I don't get it. It's just this rite. Right, yeah, it was a right, but uh, Paul is very genius in how he uses it to understand what's really going on to make you a whole new you, how God mends you now, not by the law or trying to keep the law, but by the Spirit. You see, circumcision in the Old Testament was a right by which a family showed that they were a part of the covenant people of God. It was a sign wherein a eight-year eight-day-old male child within Israel would have, you know, the circumcision of the flesh, a bris, as some call it today, and um, that would be a sign of the covenant. And Paul says the problem with that is the circumcision of the flesh also created a problem. Now, this is where he brings this up in a a uh, few verses before our, uh, or in between the beginning and end of our text. He says in Romans 2, 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, and then he goes on and he says, while you pre, uh, uh, then you who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? In other words, he's saying, if you consider yourself a Jew because you have been circumcised, you've come in, you've had this happen, and now you're under the covenant of the law, and you don't even keep it, that's a problem. That's a problem. The problem is when you think you're keeping it, you start to do what he said in that verse. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. So you think you're abiding by the law, and then you start to rely on your goodness in the law, and you think, oh, I've made it now. I'm relying on my performance of the law. And he says, you can't. So often, law-abiding people become law-relying people. They rely on their goodness on the basis of the law, and that becomes a problem. What's the solution? Paul would say it's the circumcision of the heart 
that it's a heart change, a whole new thing by the Spirit. Now, how do you get that? How do we get out of this bind that we're in? And Paul would say, it can't be by abiding by the law or relying on the law. He's written that off. So it's going to have to be a new way of thinking about things. So, um, by the way, do you realize what circumcision is? It's a sign, actually, of the curse of the covenant. When when covenants were made in the Old Testament, it's fascinating stuff. Um, The first time that we get a real explicit uh, description of how God makes covenants or was in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. And during that period of time, God promised to Abraham and said, I'm going to cut a covenant with you. And they use the word cut a covenant in the Old Testament to make a covenant because that's exactly what they did. They cut stuff. In fact, they took animals, and it's gory and bloody and gross and disgusting, but they cut these animals in half and laid them on the ground. This is how the... um, ancient Middle East made a covenant. They didn't write things down on a piece of paper and you sign on the dotted line. No, they cut animals in half. Um, Kind of, it's much more than a pinky swear, you know. Um, And then a person would walk between the halves of the animals and say, may this that we just did to these animals happen to me if I do not keep my promises. Kind of gross, huh? Well, circumcision is a sign of that covenant, kind of a personal reminder that, you know what just happened to that piece of skin? That's going to happen to you if you do not keep this covenant. You're going to get cut off. And circumcision is bloody and icky and it's kind of weird and it's a means of cutting off. And if you take on the law and you don't follow the law, Circumcision says you'll be cut off just like a piece of flesh. Now, you might say, that's just terrible to talk about cutting things off, you know, ugh, you know. Um, but you, we've faced these situations before. I think you have faced this situation, um, not necessarily physically, well, but psychologically, emotionally, and maybe distance-wise physically cutting someone off. If someone is in a friendship with you and then they just violate that friendship, they violate your trust, they abuse you. They use you. They, they disrupt your whole being. And you finally have to say, you know what? I can't have a friendship with you anymore. You might not answer their texts. You aren't going to invite them over. You won't uh, do things with them anymore. You might even drop them in so many different ways. You might block their phone calls, depending on how severe that is. So you understand what it means to cut someone off. Circumcision is that sign of what can happen if the covenant is broken. Now, what is so amazing about this in the Bible is how Paul talks about now this sign of that covenant in the Old Testament, how it's been translated and changed because of Jesus Christ. In Colossians, Paul says, now this isn't something that happens just to male children at age eight. This is all of us who are now members of the Christian community, he says, in him also, that is in Christ, you who were, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
So the circumcision God has done is he has placed you in Jesus Christ. Your old nature was cut off as you were buried through the waters of baptism. And you were given a whole new life in Jesus. And it's because why? We broke the covenant. We broke the covenant. We broke it time and again. Like I said, 90% of Israel was worshiping idols 90% of the time. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Not just once or twice, a million times over. I've broken my word a million times. I'm broken against the law all the time. I break the covenant. But what's amazing is God doesn't cut me off. No. Even though I've cut him off, I've defied his law, I've turned away from him, I've walked away, I've betrayed him, I've rebelled. I want to give him advice along with everyone else. God doesn't cut me off. He chooses to cut his own son off. He let Christ himself go through bloody hell. He is the one who takes it on himself, the curse of the covenant. So back in Genesis 15, what's so fascinating about this passage, if you read it sometime, it's, um, it's a weird passage in some ways that Abraham and God, and God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises him. You know what happens is usually both parties walk between the dead animals and promise to each other. But what happens in the, Abraham is fast asleep. And in a dream, he sees a smoking pot and a fiery torch walk through the pieces that represents God himself. He's the one who walks between. And God says, may this happen to me if I don't keep my promise to you. And that is what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ is cut off for God to keep his promise to you. Jesus Christ is the one who goes through that hell. He is the one who kept the law perfectly himself, the perfect motivation, the perfect intent, completely lived under the law like no one else, and yet Jesus is the one who gets cut off so that you are welcomed in. And that puts you, that old ego to death, that advice-giving, law-enforcing, law-relying ego to death, so that you now trust and rely on Jesus alone. By grace, you are saved through faith. You are justified. And your relationship that was broken with God is now mended because of God's work in Christ. You've already faced the judgment. You've already passed through the curse because Jesus was cut off. Now, there's an amazing uh, picture in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of scary stuff. I know a lot of people get freaked out about it. But an amazing picture of the day of judgment when God comes upon his throne to judge the whole world. But when you get a picture of who's on the throne, you see what judgment is going to be like for you and me. Because the one who is on the throne is described as a lamb who has bled and poured out his blood. In other words, Jesus Christ, the one who was cut off, is the one who decides your fate. The one who sacrificed his life for you is the one who is, is, is choosing you on that day. Jesus Christ 
is the judge who had been judged for your sins already, so there is no more judgment for you. So judgment day, in a sense, is already passed, and we can look forward and say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, and not worry about what will happen that day because of the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all sin. So religious people or irreligious people, we need to be neither. We are followers of Jesus. Because religious people will not mend this broken world, and irreligious people will not mend this broken world. Right now, both sides of any argument are still just creating more divides and more divisions, and will keep wars going and conflict brewing because it works, quote, for them in their advice giving, their law enforcing on others. And we Christians, we're not relativists or um, irreligious. We know that there's a value in God's law, that God's law is true. In fact, it is so important that Jesus had to die because of God's law for us. And we're not uh, religious and moralist people trying to tell everybody else how to live because we don't rely on the law. We may try to abide by the law, but we don't rely on it for our identity, for our purpose. We are not, no, we find our identity in Jesus Christ, the fact that we have been clothed with Christ, that we have a circumcision without hands in Christ, that we have been given his spirit, a new heart. We rely on Christ alone and follow him. And so that means we don't have to give people any advice. We can share good news. Share the gospel that mends broken hearts and broken lives in a broken world. Because it's not advice. It's not trying to teach somebody a lesson. We'd, there is no, you should be in the middle of the gospel. There is instead of an invitation, a good news, a welcome, a, hey, you got to, you know, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're thinking, you're welcomed. You're forgiven. You're given a whole new life in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, this day, um, we're seeing the divisions in this world and how this world has, seems more broken than ever. And I just look at my own heart, my own life, and see my own brokenness again. Lord, how I've broken your law, how I've walked away time and again, how I have, <laughs> I have not, um, uh, and, and how often I give advice and try to teach other people a lesson, and how, conf, uh, how hypocritical that can be, Lord God. We pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us. Thank you for the gospel where we can serve others sacrificially as you, Lord Jesus, served us completely, where we can give good news and show mercy and walk humbly because our, you receive all the glory, Lord Jesus. We lift up to you, O Lord, those in our, need, in our midst that we know need to have mended bodies right now. So for and Andrea Blankenship, who's awaiting a clinical trial for her cancer. Lord, we pray for your healing and protection. Thank you for the opportunities that are before you, and we want you to get all the glory in her life and Jeff's life. We lift up to you, Jamie, recovering from surgery. 
We lift up to you, Vern, who had us, uh, you know, seizures out of the blue, Lord God. And thank you for the care that he has received as they were driving back here from uh, the Carolinas. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep him safe in the days ahead and be with Dee as they do travel back here to be part of the Thrive family. We, um, we, we lift up to you, Kai, this little uh, young um, boy, grandson um, of Rebecca's out in California who's facing uh, chemotherapy. For Chris, who needs mending of his body for the brain tumor that he has. Lord, and you know the many others, Lord, that are facing difficulty. We pray for those who are struggling, Lord, during this COVID-19 pandemic, who are facing anxieties and fears and depression and frustration. We pray, Lord, that you bring your love and your mercy. And may we be the ears to listen and the hearts to love and serve, the hands and the feet to care and to give during those times. We lift up to you, Lord God, um, those who are facing unemployment and struggles financially during this. We pray that you would bless tomorrow our thrive by for food drive and that that food that is offered to you truly does feed those you love in this world, Lord, in many ways. We pray that you would be, um, well, Lord, bringing about healing in our society. You know all of the um, racial tensions, Lord God. You know how often we want to think we're in the right and uh, teach us, especially as Christians, Lord, to be open to hearing how we may not have been seeing things clearly. Give us your perspective, Lord, of what justice looks like, of what righteousness looks like, what mercy looks like. Lord God, um, in just a few moments, we will be able to celebrate with those watching online in uh, communion. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us, that we would understand that you are giving us your righteousness, that you're giving us all of your presence, that you are promising a gift to us again, that it's good news in tangible form. And we're hungry for you, Lord. We're thirsting for you. We need you completely. May we receive you worthily, um, appropriately, and completely for all that you are. And may you fill us, Holy Spirit, in such a way that we uh, live in response in this world and be about mending the brokenness we see around us. So for all of these things, we lift to you today, confident that you hear us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.